0: We're going to be in the 12th chapter of Numbers today. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. It's early in the Bible. It's like page 105, about there, if you're using ones in the seats. There's a challenge that's going to show up right in the first verse of of the text this morning. It's going to be a problem, but it's not really the problem. It's an excuse. So I want to talk about it now because uh, there'll be a feeling like we need to understand it. And I just want you to know, really, it's a false its a false excuse. And this happens. A lot of times, it's an excuse. It's the front man. It's the fall guy for the deeper issue that's just waiting to come out. So I'll give you some thoughts. If, I, if you're ever to play me in tennis and you ever sent the ball over the net my way, there's a good chance I would swing and not and miss, okay, I entirely miss the ball, and then I would do what many a tennis player over the years has done. I would look down at my racket, at my strings, and I would have this somewhat quizzical look like, well, how did they get through my strings? And I'd adjust, you know how they put their fingers in, sort of adjust the strings and fix them up because somehow that ball made it through the racket, and, and I don't understand it. You realize, I'm, I'm look, I'm, there's this small issue, but it's not the real issue. The problem is not the racket. The problem is the player. If a kid went to their teacher at school and said, I don't have my essay done, and the teacher said, why don't you have your essay done, Tommy? And the, Tommy said, well, I was gonna write it during the five minutes of homeroom before class started, but I got here late, okay? Now, as one who has used that excuse, I can speak on behalf of all those students. Technically, they're telling you the truth. They did intend on writing the essay during the five minutes. Okay? But that's not the problem. That's it's an it's an incident, it's a moment, but the problem is much deeper. In relationships, this happens all the time. Couples, where there's something right under the surface that really is just waiting to come out and just explode all over the room, but it's just barely beneath the surface, and it'll be sitting on the couch watching TV, and she looks over at him, and there he is picking his nose, and she says, this is the, this is the trigger, right? You got to pick your nose? Really? You have to always pick your nose? You know And trust me, he literally over there is thinking of nothing, Just picking his nose. He was just minding his own business. But out of this comes, like, and another thing, and another thing. And, you know, pretty soon it's you've never said you love me. And he's just going, like, looking at his finger, like, how did this happen? How did this happen? Because the nose was just, it was a tiny issue. It was the tip of the iceberg. But the real issue is deep down under. Okay, verse one of this chapter is a tiny issue. So tiny, in fact, that there's not a single verse in the Bible that informs it prior to this verse or after this verse. In all of the verses of all of the Bible, this is a one verse problem. That's how tiny it is. They themselves will leave it. It will never again surface in the history of God's revelation. That's how small it is. The real problem comes after it. So I'm gonna read three verses, and uh, and I think you'll you'll get a sense of, of where we're going with this. I'm gonna stop real quick, just in case you're a visitor. We're in the book of Numbers. <laughs> and Numbers is about the journey of the of the Hebrew people from the mountain of God, where they got the Ten Commandments, where they got the promise and the covenant and all of those things, where God made the people his and they made God theirs, okay? Numbers is about that journey from there through the wilderness in order to get to the promised land and sort of the misadventures that happen in that episode. Okay, so it's a very important from leaving Egypt to getting to the promised land is the, is the story of Israel. That is their first story, their most important story, And we're sort of in the middle of that on this journey to the promised land. In fact, we'll get there next Sunday. Okay, now we'll read chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now, the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. All right. Real quick, uh, who is Miriam and Moses, or Miriam and Aaron? They are the older sister and brother of Moses. <clears throat> so Miriam is his older sister. Aaron is his older brother. And you know, we know about them from the book of Exodus. In Exodus, if you remember when uh, the baby Moses was placed in a basket and pushed down the river, that was Miriam doing that. And when Pharaoh's family saw the baby in the basket, and Miriam was the one who sort of served as the ambassador, and she went over there and explained things, Okay. So that's a, a, like a role of notoriety for her. Aaron, his older brother, was given to Moses as sort of a faithful sidekick. When in the mountain of God and the burning bush, and the Lord said, "Go," and and Moses begged that it would not be him and sort of listed all of his inadequacies before the Lord. The Lord relented at one point and said, you can have Aaron. Aaron will go with you. Aaron will be with you. You can speak through Aaron. Your words through Aaron will be like God's words. Now go. So there, there are notable characters in the story. Not nearly so notable as Moses. Okay, so... For every one time you hear Aaron, you're going to hear Moses 50 times. For every one time you hear Miriam, you're going to hear Moses 250 times. But there, nonetheless, they matter in this story. And you can imagine in ancient Near East culture where family is extremely notable, this family matters. Since then, God made Aaron the high priest of Israel. So he has a very important role. And Miriam is mentioned as a prophetess. So among the people, she has served a role as well. We don't know much more than that, but that's what we know. That's who they are. Now, another thing that is worth noting, and again, we're not going to deal with this Cushite wife. It's a false problem. It's verse 2 is the problem. But before we leave verse 1, we should note how it starts. Do you see it starts with Miriam and Aaron? You see the order there? That's unusual in Hebrew. The custom would be to put the brother before the sister. It sticks out. it's caused some people to think that the problem here is that Miriam is driving the problem. Also worth noting, the verb, so Miriam and Aaron spoke against, is is the phrase. The verb spoke is third person singular feminine in the Hebrew. It's linked to Miriam. Now that is not entirely unheard of in the Hebrew. They'll usually grab the first in the subject. But it's suggestive Plus, if, in a, if you were to study Aaron, I think you would walk away with a feeling from the word that he's sort of a weak character. Do you remember when Moses went up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, and he's gone for 40 days, and the people got, felt unrestful, and they said, we need a God, we need a God. They turned to Aaron, and they said, you give us a God, and Aaron said, behold, here's a calf, your God. He, he sort of just rolled over. So all of that sort of plays into concert that, this, that Miriam, I think it's likely to say, to assume that Miriam is pushing this. Now, as the story unfolds, it might make more sense as to why I'm broaching the subject now, but, but it's in the first verse is that there's some unusual things there in the Hebrew. Okay. So what's the problem? Again, the Cushite woman his wife is has never ever been an issue, nor will it ever again be an issue. The problem is, sounds like in the second verse, that Miriam and Aaron feel like they are less important than they should be. I mean, their comments sort of sound like who died and made Moses king. Anyway, that's sort of the, that's the message. Bible. Where does he come off? Acting like he has a special audience with God. Don't we also hear from the Lord? That's what they're saying. She's a prophetess, he's the high priest. Don't we also get a word from the Lord? You know, in my mind, as I try to connect it, notice by the way, it's difficult to even connect the problem in verse two with the small problem in verse one. they seem so unrelated because they're probably not related. One is probably the excuse to vent the other I mean, I've had in my own mind to do sort of fictional stories like how can this how can these two things even connect like what happened and and they're they're just wild fiction stories in my mind as I'll tell you. uh, Here, here it is. There was a dinner party. Okay, this is pure fiction. I'm just trying to. This is an example of how these things happen. There's a dinner party. Moses and his wife, who happens to be a Cushite, invites Miriam and Aaron over, and they're sitting around the dinner table, chewing on manna. And Miriam says something like, "You know, the tassels on the tents. We should change the whole color of the tassels on the tents. We're, We're Israel, after all. We're God's people." And the Cushite, she sort of says, because she's at the dinner table, I don't know, I kind of like the tassels the way they are. And Moses, because he's oblivious to the drama that just happened, just says, mouthful of manna, Ew. that's it. Miriam and Aaron are walking home and Miriam says to Aaron, did you hear that woman? Who d- she is not even a Hebrew. Who in the world is she to give an opinion about our tassels? On our tents. She's lucky to even eat the manna. After all, like she has Moses' ear. Who is Moses? I'm saying it's fiction, but that's how these things happen. Maybe closer to how it might have happened is the fact that in the 11th chapter that we talked about last week, do you remember Moses cried out to the Lord, this is too much work, I can't do it. I can't do it. The burden you've put upon me, I am inadequate to to successfully achieve. I need help. And God said, I hear you, Moses. I'll Call 70 men, 70 elders from the tribe. I'll bless them with your spirit. Some of the spirit I've put on you, I'll put on them and they'll assist you in the work. How do you think Aaron and Miriam might have felt watching that happen? Like, it's a massive loss of market share right there. They, they were just marginalized. Now it's not Moses and Miriam and Aaron, it's Moses in the 70. Oh, yeah, and there's also Miriam and Aaron. The third verse is a really important verse. It's the, the writer or the narrator of the, the book is speaking up for a second. So it's, it's almost out of the story. It's a parenthesis. And we're being told something we need to know in order to interpret the story. Just like last week, remember the people complained about food. All we have is this stupid, lame old manna, they said. And the writer spoke up and said, now manna is like coriander seed, and he went on to describe it. He said it makes kind of a cake. In other words, the narrator was saying, there really is no problem here. They're just unsatisfied. The narrator is doing the same thing right here. When they're complaining about Moses, an objective reader might say, Well is Moses like a heavy handed leader? Is he pushy? Is he is he obstinate? And the narrator is saying, you need to know something. On the face of the earth, no one is as humble as that guy. He is not the problem. Any any group of people on the face of the earth would be blessed to have a man like Moses leading them. That's what the narrator is saying. He is not the problem. Now, before we move to the rest of the story, I want to pause on this idea of power because I think Miriam and Aaron reflect something that's in us. I think they reflect a natural desire of people to be on the inside, not on the outside, of whatever circle you draw, right? You want to be in the decision-making circle. You want to be... Everybody wants to be in the circle where when you crack a bad joke, your friends laugh versus outside the circle when you crack a really good joke, people don't know what to do with it. You know how? Those circles exist in all sorts of ways. They overlap and they interconnect, but this is why people don't like to move very often. They don't want to start outside of every circle again and have to work themselves back. People want to be holding the keys, possessing the power. People want power. Nearly everyone wants power. They want power way more than they want responsibility, by the way. And a lot of times, people desire a position for the power it gives them. And then pride creeps in. Pride has this strange way with turning something you want into something you ought to have. So pride has its way of saying, not simply, I want that position, but, you know, I really ought to have that position. I'm the most deserving of that position. So what's happening to Miriam and Aaron is not unique. It's common. When we look out on the political landscape, I just think we live in an environment right now that's sort of saturated with this feeling like elected officials pursue office for their own vainglory. What about the people they represent? It makes the fact that Moses is in his position all the more miraculous. Here is an unusual position where there's somebody who's occupying a position of significant power who never feels the power, he only feels the responsibility. He's exercising his role purely out of responsibility, not out of pride. No one is that humble. Last week we said throughout Numbers, one way to understand Numbers well is to say to yourself, Jesus is a better Moses. Jesus is a better Moses. This is one of those times. You should see Jesus as a better Moses. No one on earth is as humble. Who who would have such a high station in the cosmos and yet would come and do what he did? Never once exercising his power in such a way as to get a positive vibe. Never once in any narrative of Christ do you feel that he's fanning the flames of his own pride or ambition. Never. He was tempted in that very manner by the serpent. And yet was without sin. Christ, who's a better Moses, said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Of Christ, the Apostle Paul writes, that we should, we brothers and sisters in Christ, should be like him who, though in very nature God did not consider equality with God anything to be grasped, but humbled himself. That's how we should be. Of him, the prophets wrote that before his crucifixion, like a sheep before his shears, is silent, so will he keep his mouth shut. Pontius Pilate had to drag out of him, are you a king? Tell me really, are you a king? You say that I am. The word out of which everything that has been made came washed the feet of his disciples. No one is so humble as Jesus He's not the problem. All right, let's read. The Lord comes to the rescue of a servant, as he so often does. Verse four, and suddenly the Lord said to Moses, excuse me, and suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam. By the way, you see the name order there? Moses, Aaron, Miriam. You see how chapter 12 started? Miriam, Miriam. Aaron, Moses. Okay? Hebrew doesn't mess around like that. That, Those are intentional. Okay? And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. And he departed. Now I imagine for most of us, we we have this dream or this hope that God will one day speak to us. Like if I could just hear the words of the Lord. But not like this. This is not what you want to hear. You do not want to hear the Lord going, I'm curious to know why you're not scared right now. The three of them are summoned before the Lord and he he, the Lord uses this very ironic phrase, he says, Hear my words, which ironically was the thing they claimed in the very beginning. Do not we get to speak with the Lord just like he does? Are we not are we not do we not have access just like Moses does? And so the Lord says, You want me to talk? Here, I'm gonna talk, hear my words. And he differentiates Moses from everyone else. He says, when I want to make my will known to a prophet, I talk through visions. I talk through dreams. The Lord sort of has a respectful distance in those occasions when he's working through a prophet. A distance of we're not really the same kind. You're serving me, but we're not really of the same. He says, with Moses, it's not that way. With Moses, there is no distance between me and him. When I talk with Moses, I talk like mouth to mouth, like we're right here. I talk to him like a friend. I don't talk in riddles. I don't talk in parables. I'm not quizzical. I'm not vague. We discuss matters. There's nothing about Moses that I'm not sure about. No one is loyal or faithful like him. Remember, Jesus is a bit of Moses. Just hear it. No one is like him. Why then are you not afraid? The text says in verse nine, the Lord's anger burns and then he departs. I think, and I actually think the title here in the Bible that Miriam and Aaron oppose Moses is not the best title. I think Miriam and Aaron think they're opposing Moses, but they're opposing God. That's the problem. Is there opposition to the Lord? How is it, I mean, how much have they missed through their pride that they would place themselves at the same plane as Moses. That has has all the the tellings of someone who has, you know, just to use church language, they have an opinion about how the church should be and through their arrogance they give it like the sanctity of the Holy Ghost. So, you know, I, I think it should be like this, and pretty soon, like, they would think that they have all the Holy Ghost up in them to make this holy, I really think the will of the Lord is this. I mean, they're looking at Moses, whom God's called, who daily is visiting with the Lord. It's, it's really quite shocking that they would elevate their own sort of opinion into the land of God speaks to us also in the same way. Let's watch how the Lord deals with it. Verse 10, when the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when it comes out of his mother's womb. The picture is like a stillborn child. That's what's trying to be expressed. Verse 13, and Moses cried to the Lord, O God, please heal her, please. But the Lord said to Moses, if her father had but spit in her face, should she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp for seven days. After that, she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. Now, we'll talk about the heart of the text, but the first question that surfaced for me when I was studying this was, why does Aaron and Miriam, why do they get such different treatment? And I think it's related to what I talked about earlier. The indication in the language suggests maybe Miriam was the one who was pushing this. Um, One other thought that I can introduce, I won't spend a long time on it, is the fact that Aaron is the high priest. And Aaron's role as priest might supersede sort of his personal behavior here. I think the Lord may have a need to preserve the role of high priest. When you struck the high priest with leprosy, among the people that are just trying to figure God out in the first moment, that might be difficult. Those are the only thoughts I really have there. But the truth of the matter is, the whole picture sets everything right. You know, Miriam doesn't die of leprosy. It's a seven-day ordeal. There's sort of a shaming in it, a setting things right. And both of them have to do that. Did you notice that God departed in the ninth verse before anyone knew she had leprosy? Ninth verse, and the anger of the Lord was kindled, and he departed. Verse 10, when the cloud of the Lord dissipated, there she was, leprous, white like snow. God is nowhere to be around. In other words, the Lord's curse, the nature of the curse has put right in front of them. How are you going to fix this? How, or how you treat Moses has everything to do with whether this gets fixed. Aaron cannot turn to the Lord. Because the Lord is not there. The Lord is saying silently in his absence, if you want to hear me, you have to talk through Moses because Moses is not like a prophet who occasionally hears from me in a vision or a dream. Moses is like a friend with whom I commune mouth to mouth, clearly and without riddles because there's no one like him. He's upright among all the people. So the, the way that the Lord has arranged this, it's, it's, it's forcing Aaron and Miriam to petition through the Lord through Moses in exactly the way in opposition to their original stance. It's forcing them to do things right. It's forcing them not only to do it right, but to hope that everything that God said is true. Miriam's hope is that Moses is special. Miriam's only hope is that Moses has access to the Lord. It's interesting, Aaron doesn't think he can go to God because God is gone, but Moses doesn't seem to hesitate. God's just as gone for Moses, but he turns right to the Lord and petitions, and the Lord responds right away. Why is that? Because Moses is not like other people. He knows the Lord, and they speak as though they're friends. And what comes out of Moses' mouth? Is it vengeance? You know, I'm thinking, I, we have, I have brothers and sister. I, I, our kids. <laughs> out of his mouth comes mercy. I mean, I would think maybe at least let him writhe for a while. In fact, so much mercy comes out of the heart of Moses. There's not a sign of need for recompense. There's not a sign of a need for vengeance. There's nothing he pleads to the Lord, Lord, heal her, please. Please heal her. Such overwhelming mercy comes out of Moses, in fact, that the Lord has to sort of enter back in and say, now listen now, nobody's going to learn anything unless she has like a seven-day penalty lap. He says, for a far lesser offense in the custom of the people, far more shame would have been given. Like, the lord sort of is caring for the long game here but out of the heart of moses is mercy i would not have been surprised if in the text here moses had said something like lord forgive them for they know not what they do because jesus is a better a better moses i want to i want to deal with this phrase for a second <clears throat> Jesus is a better Moses. Some of you may wonder like, is that just something preachers say when they arrive at something nice in Scripture? Jesus is a better Moses, Jesus is a better David, Jesus is a better Joseph, Jesus is a better Samson. You know, they never say Jesus is a better Pharaoh. Like, is that something I just read? It is. Something I read. It didn't come from me, but it's not just an idea. How do, we deal with, how do we deal with the Old Testament? How do we deal with these stories in the Old Testament? The way, the best way to read the Bible is in reverse. And I don't mean from the last page to the first page. I mean the Bible is really intended to be read from Christ into the Old Testament. That's that's how it is best read. To understand who Jesus is, to hear what Jesus says, to hear the implications that Jesus brings upon himself, and then out of a sense of holy obligation to know him better, dive into the words he quoted and implied himself in. So when Jesus opens the scroll in his hometown and reads out of the prophet Isaiah, and then says, today in your hearing, these scriptures have been fulfilled someone who sees him and understands him is now forced, commanded to know the Old Testament. When Jesus says to onlookers who despise him before Abraham was, I am. He's goading them into the Old Testament. When Jesus Christ himself enters in at the Passover meal, the most holy day of their most holy narrative, this very narrative of being saved from darkness into light, saved from slavery into freedom, when he inserts himself in the upper room in that place and says, this is my body, which is broken for you. When he does that, he's taking ownership of the story. He's placing a flag in Exodus in this entire story saying, this is about me. That's why we look for it. That's why I say the Bible is best read in reverse. You get your feet grounded in who Jesus is and what he says about himself, and then through those implications, you go back and discover things in the Old Testament that you would have never seen before. In fact, if you study the Old Testament as though it it was its own Bible, if all of you had was the Old Testament, it would not solve problems for you. It would... It's beautiful, it's elegant, it's holy, it's true, but it will not resolve the problem. It's like a beautiful gold necklace that's tied in knots. You find Christ, and everything gets unwound. Everything gets straightened out. So that when we come, particularly if you don't know a lot about Jesus or you don't know a lot about the testimony of Christ and you come and you read in Numbers and you think, man, God struck her with leprosy or last week, wow, God put fire around the camp or he struck people dead with a plague. What kind of God would do that? If that's the only image of God you have in this story, the world just got more complicated for you. But the truth is that is not the only picture of God in this story because in this picture, the full picture of God is not the God who's speaking from heaven. It's God and Moses. They, they combine God and Jesus. That's the picture here. The picture that we are supposed to see when we're grounded in Christ and look back into the story is not in a God up high who has a sense of truth but strikes people dead. It is there is a God who cares about everything as it should be, in him there is nothing wrong. He's entirely righteous. Pure truth and justice are his. He's the only non-changing agent in the cosmos. That God is there. And his son Christ travels with us and pleads mercy. As we're brought from a life of darkness into a life of freedom, Christ walks with us. And so you have For the soul that needs to know, is there a God who cares about justice? The Bible testifies there is absolutely a God who cares about justice. The problem is, you are unjust. The problem is, you have done things. There's things that every one of us have left undone at great detriment to the will of God, at great harm. If you can't think of a way that you've harmed one of God's creatures, or one of God's ways, you are blind. And every one of us here have done things that are in direct contradiction to the way and nature and love of God. So we who want a just God are confounded when we see a God here, who how he deals justly with people. And yet we find in the very same text an expression of Christ who is ever with us, ever pleading mercy for us. This is, you only see this when you read this book in reverse. You only see it once you know Christ and then go back into the word and discover him in the Old Testament. We're walking. Right, our life is being, we're wandering through a wilderness and we're going somewhere. God is trying to take us somewhere. And he does not have to forfeit his holiness to abide our fellowship. Christ is a better Moses. Will you pray with me, please, as we bow our heads? Lord, as we come before you, In my mind are elements of our present worldview that get in the way of seeing you, Lord, a sense that there can be no judgment for wrongdoing, a sense that there ought to be no hell, a sense that there ought to be no judgment at the end of time. Lord, these things sit in our worldview. They are how we start life, here in america for sure and yet they they don't even make sense when we are purely honest we want justice lord i pray that we would not have to let go of the father to have the son or let go of the son to have the father because you are one I pray, Lord, that we can worship a God because he's just and right and true and holy and then worship him right again because he's merciful. May this be the nature of our testimony, Lord. May this be the nature of how we come to you. May this ever keep us humble as we come to you. And may we continually learn and discover the way, the true way in which you have chosen to love us. Pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.